Welcome to Market Matters, our markets podcast on making sense, the hub for J.P. Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of Market Matters, we discuss the latest news and trends shaping markets today. Welcome and thank you for joining us for the final installment of our six-part podcast series on benchmark rate reform and leaving LIBOR. I'm Greg Geffen, head of J.P. Morgan's corporate interest rate derivatives team. Joining me today for this discussion are two of my colleagues, Trish Devine, North America Head of Global Corporate Banking, and Ben Kinney, Global Co-Head of Interest Rate Sales. Trish and Ben, thanks both for being here. We have a lot to cover in the next 20 minutes, so let's get to it. Ben, it's been a year since we last convened to discuss LIBOR transition. Can you give us a quick reminder of the key events and where we find ourselves now? Sure, Greg. Thanks. I'd say there's been a lot of progress since we were last together, and most of the progress has been as expected. In the derivative space, for example, SOFR swaps now consistently account for 85% of the average daily trading volume in the market, with really the only LIBOR swaps going through the system as risk-reducing transactions. In exchange-traded derivatives, for example, SOFR futures average daily trading volume is now roughly three times more than Eurodollar futures after being less than a quarter of Eurodollar futures volumes at the start of 2022. So the market structure evolution has happened as we expected. So for now for derivatives contracts, both OTC and exchange traded, SOFR is the predominant reference rate. In the cash market as well, SOFR is now the predominant reference rate with almost all of the U.S. dollar floating rate notes and really all of the U.S. dollar adjustable rate agency mortgages being tied to SOFR. In addition, almost all new U.S. dollar loans that are traded reference term SOFR. And for syndicated loans, nearly 100% of the dollar syndicated loan market uh, references SOFR, compared to only about 30% back in December of 2021. Like I said, adoption for the new reference rate has been pretty spectacular and really, as we expected, it's picked up pace in the last nine months or so. At the end of 2022, we had passage of the LIBOR Act. So we now have the confirmed statutory replacement rate for any non-remediated U.S. law contracts at cessation. One of the other developments over the past year is the potential for non-representative synthetic LIBOR. And we're very likely to get one-month, three-month, and six-month dollar LIBOR in synthetic form, in a non-representative synthetic form, to be clear, through September 2024. So now we're three months to cessation. We do have a few more milestones that we need to get through. Really, for most of our clients, the key milestone still to come is the CCP conversion process, which will take place. We've been doing dry runs uh, with the uh, clearinghouses, as most of our clients have as well. It feels like it's well on track to happen between April and May of this year. And then the other big process is going to be processing fallbacks as we get close to cessation as well. For fallbacks, it's a lot of operational work for our clients in the street, but bilateral contracts. But again, that work is well underway within firms to prepare for the transition. We think that's going to go relatively smoothly over the coming months. And I think you made it quite clear that SOFR is now well-established across all products. Are there any areas where clients are still looking for guidance from your teams? Greg, the question that we get most often from clients right now is around term SOFR and its use cases for our client base. To be clear, the ARC has provided guidance on best practices, and this is what JP Morgan is adhering to when we are trading with our clients. The guidance states that term SOFR can be used in very limited use cases, effectively only to hedge cash products that reference term SOFR. 
The most prevalent use case here is to hedge term SOFR loans where people need to maintain hedge accounting linkages, which is critical for many of our market participants. And to a lesser extent, we're seeing term SOFR to be used to hedge outstanding securitization transactions. I would like to mention one area of discrepancy in the market right now. While the ARC has given us their guidance, the CME in their FAQs has given slightly broader guidance around what can be used for term SOFR. Again, to be clear, we're following the ARC's guidance in what we're allowing for in our transactions, term SOFR to be used. Moving to the loans market, in our last podcast, you highlighted the progress that's been seen in developing the SOFR lending market. Has this continued, and and assuming so, how has the market evolved over the past year? Thanks, Greg. As we consider the three core segments to the loan market, uh, there are some consistencies as well as nuances among the three. With respect to the term loan B market, approximately 33% of borrowers uh, have already moved to SOFR. This is up twofold from the start of the year, so seeing progress there. Multiple deals each week are also converting to SOFR from LIBOR. However, Given the dynamics between SOFR and LIBOR, some borrowers are opting to wait in moving to SOFR, just given SOFR is on top of LIBOR, and when you add in the the CSA is, is slightly more expensive. We do expect, however, to see a continued uptick in the rate at which issuers are transitioning, with much of that activity to occur in May and in June. The final point I would make on the term loan B segment is that all deals are SOFR based. The mid-corp and middle market leverage finance pro rata markets have seen many borrowers lock in our hardwire at 11, 26, and 42, and have begun to execute conforming amendments to formally affect the switch. Overall, roughly 50% of the market remains to transition in the second quarter with the predominance of these facilities on ARC. And consistent with the Terminal B market, all new deals in this segment and refinancings have been on a SOFR basis. And finally, within the investment grade segment, it's been converting to SOFR as borrowers extend maturities. The pace of borrowers doing conforming amendments has also accelerated since the beginning of the year. Within JP Morgan's portfolio of transactions, we are well over 50% completed and expect uh, a continued high pace of volume over the next one to two months to complete the remediation. Chris, you also mentioned in our last podcast that clients should, quote, start early when amending legacy USD LIBOR loan products. Um, and obviously, we've made a lot, of, a lot of progress on that front, so clearly people were listening. Given that the majority of loans are out of scope of legislative fallbacks, Where do we stand now with only three months to go until cessation? Yeah, so as I alluded to in the prior comments, there's been good progress in remediation with a marked uptick in engagement since the start of the year, but there's still work to be done. Certainty of what will happen within agreements post the 30th of June for all parties is key, both from an economic and an operational perspective. So therefore, our recommendation for borrowers is to move forward to do conforming changes and amendments as soon as possible. If the decision is to amend, to change from ARC to other CSA or refinance, legal resources could get stretched, particularly as we approach June 30th. So our continued recommendation, as we said last year uh, and on this call, is just do not delay. Ben mentioned the LIBOR Act at the top of the podcast. As a reminder to our listeners, the LIBOR Act reduces potential for market disruption or disputes at cessation. 
It provides statutory replacement rates for in-scope products at cessation based on industry-agreed fallbacks. Its scope includes a majority of U.S.-governed law contracts, including derivatives, floating rate notes, and securitization. And at fallback, contracts will move to statutory replacement rates if they aren't amended prior to the cessation date. Two questions, Ben, one for you. How will this apply to markets clients? And Trish, how does the LIBOR Act apply to loan contracts? The LIBOR Act was a very positive development in the transition process. Just to be clear, the scope includes a majority of U.S. law-governed contracts, including derivatives, floating rate notes, and securitization. Keep in mind that the LIBOR Act really only matters if you haven't done anything to remediate your portfolio. And just for some background, J.P. Morgan is now roughly 99% remediated with our derivatives contracts. It's binotional. And the majority of our clients across our client platform. So this is really about the tail of the derivative side of the platform, while floating rate notes and securitizations are impacted to a greater degree. Again, keep in mind that floating rate notes and, and securitizations have a much higher consent threshold or a very high consent threshold to amend. So the majority of the outstanding contracts uh, that, that haven't been amended will be governed by the LIBOR Act if they don't have a defined fallback rate. This does lead to the potential, and this is where, Greg, to your question, you could have an impact for some clients who are accounting sensitive. So if you have a derivatives contract, the law states that you will basically use the is to fallback methodology, which is so for compounded in arrears plus the fallback spread, while for floating rate notes and securitizations, you'll use CME term SOFR rather than the compounded SOFR rate plus a spread. Again, if you have a, a derivative hedging a security, you're going to have a basis at cessation as you've got different conventions on the two sides of the trade. So this is something that I do think any clients who are going to use the LIBOR Act fallback, they need to be aware of as they will have this basis in their portfolio. And as it relates to the loan side, I would reiterate, so the U.S. LIBOR Act applies to loans that are governed under U.S. law. However, it's worth noting that most legacy LIBOR loans have a defined fallback rate, for example, ABR, which could be prime or Fed funds plus 50. Generally speaking, if there is a defined non-LIBOR benchmark to fall back to, contracts are out of scope for relief from the legislative fallbacks. Therefore, we would suggest making the time now to ensure you review of agreements to understand the fallbacks in each of the respective agreements and act accordingly. So engage with your agents on your facilities to discuss what options are available, especially if you do not want to rely on documented fallbacks. Ben, you mentioned that there is the potential for a non-representative synthetic U.S. dollar LIBOR to be published post-cessation. First, what is it? And second, why does the industry need it? Synthetic LIBOR is important for a couple of reasons. First, this was proposed by the FCA to have one, three, and six-month synthetic LIBOR to the end of September 2024. And this is necessary because while we have the LIBOR Act in the U.S. governing U.S. law contracts, we need a solution for non-U.S. law contracts that have not been remediated. We've seen this, as I mentioned before, in both the UK and Japan, where having a longer lead time and a non-representative rate has allowed the bulk of the contracts to quickly get remediated after cessation and is effectively going to be the CME term SOFR plus the fallback spread, which is different from the ISDA fallback rate, which is compounded SOFR plus the fallback spread. This is all still a little bit theoretical. The FCA comment period has ended. But we do think that we'll get guidance from the FCA in the very near term 
around synthetic LIBOR. Again, as I said, given our experience in both the UK and Japan, we would expect that this extension of the time frame to September of 2024 will lead to much better outcomes for contracts where there's still some ambiguity around what should happen. Trish, maybe on the same point, how do clients assess if this synthetic rate will apply to them? Synthetic LIBOR is not a new rate, as Ben mentioned, but is a term for how U.S. dollar LIBOR will continue to be calculated and published post-June of this year. The future announcement of synthetic LIBOR may provide borrowers an ability to utilize the synthetic rate, which will be termed SOFR plus the fallback spread. Our suggestion for clients is to review their contracts and, if needed, engage legal counsel so there's an understanding as to the governing law, as well as if the contract has non-representative clauses or other clauses that could likely prevent continued referencing of LIBOR, albeit in a synthetic form. So finally, here would note that synthetic LIBOR is not a solution for all contracts, so the review and early review is recommended. And obviously, stay close to this for updated information is likely in the near term. Ben, switching gears, you touched on some key milestones still to come. What do the next three months have in store for us? The sprint to the finish line is what the next three months, I think, are, are about for most of our clients as we get ready for cessation at the beginning of the summer. I think the two key things that folks are focused on right now, at least among the institutional client base, are the CCB conversions, which should take place early in Q2. The CCPs will proactively be converting roughly $60 trillion of U.S. dollar LIBOR cleared swaps to SOFR. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, most of our clients are heavily engaged with the CCPs in this process. But if you aren't, please get engaged on this process. It's going to be a lot of operational work. The dress rehearsals so far have gone quite well with the CCPs, but it's a big hurdle. And then I think for bilateral derivatives, really it's, it's all about fallback at this point. Again, the vast majority of our clients have adhered to protocols. And I'd remind everybody that while LIBOR is, you know, goes away early in the summer, Fallback occurs at the next fixing after cessation. Most of our clients are heavily engaged in this that we have bilateral derivatives with. We're reaching out to clients all throughout our portfolio, but this is going to be a big operational process that will require engagement both from our counterparties and throughout our bank. Trish, Ben, maybe I'll ask this question of both of you. For clients who have yet to update existing USR LIBOR contracts, is it too late or is there still um, the opportunity to restructure those portfolios? It's definitely not too late. And we have you know, been having numerous conversations and strongly recommending that clients consider proactively restructuring ahead of cessation, because there are some benefits, including removing the need for operational work at fallback, providing more certainty around it. It remains the preferred course of action in discussions among others within this space. So definitely not too late and you know, would recommend proactive restructuring if it works. I'd echo that. I think, you know, we're seeing every day clients look to transition their portfolio, clients who know that we're getting close to cessation. And even if they have agreed to fall back in contracts, they're still looking to change their reference rates. And I would expect a flurry of activity 
into cessation this summer. I do think as well, clients need to recognize that this has become normal way of doing business with the new reference rate. And I think there was a fear a year ago, the transaction costs to move your portfolio to the new reference rate was going to be quite expensive. Those transaction costs have come down quite meaningfully, but that's largely because the street has recognized the need for this. I do worry that anybody who waits too long will find transaction costs could actually go up again as we near cessation and LIBOR volumes really plummet. So I I would agree 100% with Patricia. This is something where I would argue you want to get on this sooner than later. So we've covered a lot of ground and you've both given our listeners a lot to think about today. As one last question for each of you, Ben and Trish, can you give our listeners one key takeaway that they should all be thinking about at this point? As we've been talking about in each one of these podcasts, I think that the message is the same. Understand the risks in your portfolio. And as Trish just mentioned, be proactive in managing those risks as we get through the finish line. ARC 1.0, if you recall, kicked off back in 2014 and ARC 2.0 took the ball in 2018. So we're, we're coming up on almost a decade's worth of work on this process. But if you're not diligent in the last mile of this race, I do worry that you're going to end up with portfolios that, as I mentioned earlier, have some strange basis in them, or you end up with old legacy illiquid contracts that may be difficult to unwind over time. So I really think understanding your portfolio and thoughtfully managing the risks in this uh, in these next few months is absolutely critical. Greg, I would just add to be proactive and take action, as we have discussed, to amend or restructure ahead of cessation, to avoid fallback to expensive prime or base rates, but also to minimize potential bottlenecks that might occur and increase costs as others also wait to the June 30th deadline. So act now. I think that's a great place to end it. Krish, Ben, thank you both for all of your insights and guidance today. We hope you, all of our listeners, found this conversation informative. And as always, we'd encourage you to reach out to your JP Morgan representatives with any questions or to discuss your own portfolios. Thanks again for joining us and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to Market Matters. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll review, rate, and subscribe to JP Morgan's Making Sense to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This podcast is intended for institutional clients only, and the views expressed in this podcast may not necessarily reflect the views of JP Morgan Jason Company and its affiliates. Together, JP Morgan and do not constitute research or recommendation, advice or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any security or financial instrument. Reference products and services in this podcast may not be suitable for you and may not be available in all jurisdictions. JP Morgan may make markets and trade as principal in securities and other asset classes and financial products that may have been discussed. For additional disclaimers and regulatory disclosures, please visit www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclosures.